Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 55 In which the same subject is pursued. Becky did not rally from the stupor and confusion into which events had plunged her until the chapel bells were ringing for afternoon service. Rising from her bed, she rang her own bell to summon the fr- Rising from her bed, she rang her own bell to summon the French maid. She rang many times in vain, and came out to the landing with her hair over her shoulders, and screamed out repeatedly for her attendant. Mademoiselle Fifine did not appear. The truth is, she had left the house many hours earlier. After picking up the trinkets in the drawing-room, Mademoiselle had ascended to her own apartments, packed her boxes, brought them down herself, and called a cab without asking the aid of any of the other servants, and had made her exit from Curzon Street. She carried off not only the trinkets, but some favorite dresses on which she had long kept her eye. Four gilt Louis XIV candlesticks, six albums and books of beauty— a gold-enameled snuff-box, and Becky's little inkstand and mother-of-pearl blotting-book. The silver-plated ware was too cumbrous and was left behind. Probably for the same reason, she left the fire-irons and the piano. Hearing a stir below, and indignant at those servants who would not answer her summons, Mrs. Crawley flung her morning robe around her and descended majestically to the drawing-room. The cook was there, with blackened face— "'seated on the beautiful chintz sofa next to Mrs. Raggles, "'to whom she was giving maraschino. "'The page had his fingers in the cream dish. "'The footman was talking to Raggles, who looked woeful and perplexed. "'Though Becky had screamed half a dozen times, "'not one servant had obeyed her call. "'Have a little drop, do we now, Mrs. Raggles?' "'the cook was saying as Becky entered. "'Simpson, trot her!' Mrs. Crawley cried in great wrath. How dare you stay here when you heard me call? How dare you sit on my sofa? Where's my maid? The cook took a glass of maraschino, staring at Becky as she drained its contents. Your Sophie, indeed, Mrs. Cook said. I'm a settin' on Mrs. Raggles, Sophie. Don't you stir, Mrs. Raggles, ma'am. I'm a settin' on Mr. and Mrs. Raggles, Sophie. And I'm thinkin' if I set here until I'm paid my wages, I shall set a precious long time. <laughs> and with this, she filled herself another glass of liquor. Trotter! Simpson! Turn that drunken wretch out! screamed Mrs. Crowley. I shan't! said Trotter, the footman. Turn out yourself. Pay our salaries and we'll go fast enough. Are you all here to insult me? cried Becky in a fury. When Colonel Crowley comes home, I... <laughs> at this, the servants 
burst into laughter. <laughs> he ain't a coming back, Mr. Trotter said. He sent for his things, but I wouldn't let him go. I don't believe he's no more a colonel than I am. He's off, and I suppose you're a-going after him. You're swindlers, both on you. Don't be a bullying me. Pay us our salaries, I say. It was evident from Mr. Trotter's flushed face and speech that he, too, had been drinking. Mr. Raggles, said Becky, in a passion of vexation, you will surely not let me be insulted by that drunken man. Oh, ma'am, said Raggles, I've known the Crawley family ever since I was born. I little thought one of that family was a-going to ruin me. Are you a-going to pay me? You've lived in this house four year. You owe me a milk and butter bill, a two hundred pound, for you must have cream for your spaniel dog. She didn't care what her own son had, interposed the cook. He'd a starve but for me. He's a charity boy now, said Mr. Trotter. Honest Raggles continued lamenting his griefs. All he said was true. Becky and her husband had ruined him. He had no means to pay his bills. He would be turned out of his shop and his house because he had trusted the Crawley family. You all seem to be against me, said Becky bitterly. I can't pay you today. Come back tomorrow and I'll pay you everything. I thought Colonel Crawley had settled with you. He will, tomorrow, upon my honour. He left home this morning with fifteen hundred pounds in his pocketbook. He has left me nothing. There, there was a quarrel between us, as you seem to know. But he has got a good appointment. You shall all be paid. Let me go out and find him. At this, Raggles and the servants looked at each other with wild surprise. Rebecca went upstairs and dressed herself. She went into Rawdon's room, where she saw a trunk and bag packed, ready for removal, with a note that they should be given when called for. Then she went into the Frenchwoman's garret, where everything was clean and all the drawers empty. Good heavens! Was ever such bad luck as mine, she said, to be so near and to lose all. Oh, is it too late? No. There was one chance more. Once dressed, she went away alone. It was four o'clock. She walked swiftly down the street to Sir Pitt Crawley's door in Great Gaunt Street. Lady Jane was at church, but Sir Pitt was in his study. She must see him. She slipped past the servant and was in Sir Pitt's room before the astonished baronet had even laid down the paper. He turned red and gave her a look of great alarm and horror. "'Do not look so,' she said. "'I am not guilty, dear Pitt. "'Before God I am not guilty. "'But everything is against me. "'And, oh, just when all my hopes were about to be realised, "'just when happiness was in store for us.' "'Is this true, then, what I see in the paper?' "'Sir Pitt said. "'He had read a paragraph there which had greatly surprised him. "'It is true.' "'Lord Steyne told me on the night of that fatal ball. "'He has been promised an appointment these six months. "'The colonial secretary told him yesterday that it was arranged. "'Then that, that unlucky arrest followed, that horrible meeting. "'I was only guilty of being too devoted to Rawdon's service. "'I have received Lord Steyne alone a hundred times before.' 
I confess I had money of which Rawdon knew nothing. Don't you know how careless he is of it? And so she went on with a perfectly connected story. It went like this. Becky owned frankly, but with deep contrition, that having noticed Lord Steyne's partiality for her, and being sure of her own virtue, she had determined to turn the great peer's attachment to the advantage of her family. "'I looked for a peerage for you, Pitt,' she said. He turned red. "'We have talked about it. Your genius and Lord Steyne's interest made it probable, had not this dreadful calamity put an end to all our hopes.' "'But first I wanted to rescue my dear husband, "'whom I love in spite of all his ill-usage and suspicions, "'to rescue him from poverty and ruin. "'I admit,' she said, casting down her eyes, "'that I did everything in my power "'to make myself pleasing to Lord Steyne, "'as far as an honest woman may. "'On Friday morning the news arrived "'of the death of the governor of Coventry Island.' and my lord instantly secured the appointment for my dear husband. It was intended as a surprise for him. Even after that horrid arrest took place, the expenses of which Lord Steyne generously said he would settle so that I was prevented from coming to my husband's assistance, my lord was laughing with me and saying that my dearest Rawdon would be consoled when he read of his appointment in the paper. And then he came home. Oh, the dreadful scene took place between my lord and my cruel, cruel Rawdon. And, oh, my God, what will happen next? Oh, dear Pitt, pity me, pity me, and reconcile us. She flung herself down on her knees and, bursting into tears, seized Pitt's hand and kissed it passionately. It was in this attitude that Lady Jane, returning from church, found them. I am surprised that woman has the audacity to enter this house, Lady Jane said, trembling and turning quite pale. Her maid had talked to Raggles and Rawdon Crawley's household, who had told her all. How dare Mrs. Crawley enter the house of an honest family? Sir Pitt started back, amazed at his wife's display of vigor. Becky still knelt and clung to his hand. Tell her, tell her that I am innocent, dear Pitt she whimpered. Upon my word, my love, I, I think you do, Mrs. Crawley, injustice, Sir Pitt said. Indeed, I believe her to be, to be what? cried out Lady Jane, her clear voice thrilling and her heart beating violently. To be a wicked woman, a heartless mother, a false wife. She never loved her dear little boy, who used to tell me of her cruelty. She never came into a family without bringing misery with her wicked flattery and falsehoods. She has deceived her husband as she has deceived everybody. Her soul is black. I tremble when I touch her. I keep my children out of her sight. Lady Jane, cried Sir Pitt, this is really language. I have been a true and faithful wife to you, Sir Pitt, Lady Jane continued. I have kept my marriage vow and have been obedient as a wife should. But righteous obedience has its limits, and I will not bear that, that woman, again under my roof. If she enters it, I and my children will leave. You must choose, sir, between her and me. With this, my lady swept out of the room, fluttering with her own boldness, and leaving Rebecca and Sir Pitt astonished.
As for Becky, she was not hurt. Nay, she was pleased. It was the diamond clasp you gave me, she said to Sir Pitt, reaching out her hand. And before she left him, Sir Pitt had promised to seek out his brother and to try to bring about a reconciliation. Rawdon took breakfast with the young fellows of the regiment in the mess-room and listened to the talk about Mademoiselle Ariane of the French opera and the latest boxing match. When McMurdo came down and joined them, he got in with stories as choice as any the youngest rake had to tell. Old Mac was famous for his good stories. He and Rawdon finished their breakfast without giving any hint of the business which was occupying their minds and walked off to the club. There, the newspaper room was almost empty, but for three men. One looked up from the Sunday paper with some interest and said, Crawley, I congratulate you. What do you mean? said the colonel. It's in the Observer and the Royalist, too, said Mr. Smith. What? Rodden cried, turning very red and thinking that the affair with Lord Steyne was already in the public press. He took up the paper and trembling began to read. Mr. Smith and the other gentlemen had been discussing Crawley just before he came in. It has come just in the nick of time, said Smith. Crawley had not a shilling in the world. What's the salary? Two or three thousand, answered Brown, his companion. But the climate's so infernal they don't enjoy it long. Liver siege died after eighteen months of it, and the man before went off in six weeks. His brother must have got the colonel the place. Ah, said Brown, with a sneer. It was Lord Steyne. Rawdon now read in The Royalist this astonishing paragraph. Governorship of Coventry Island. Sir Thomas Liversedge has fallen a victim to the prevailing fever at Swampton. His loss is deeply felt in the flourishing colony. We hear that the governorship has been offered to Colonel Rawdon Crawley, C.B., a distinguished Waterloo officer who is no doubt admirably suited for the post. Coventry Island? Where was it? Who had appointed him? You must take me out as your secretary, old boy, Captain McMurdo said with a laugh. As they sat wondering, the club waiter brought in the card of Mr. Wenham, who begged to see Colonel Crawley. They went out to meet him, rightly guessing that he was sent by Lord Steyne. "'How do you do, Crawley? I am so glad to see you,' said Mr. Wenham, with a bland smile, grasping Crawley's hand cordially. "'You come from, I suppose.' "'Exactly,' said Mr. Wenham. "'This is my friend, Captain McMurdo.' "'Delighted, I'm sure,' Mr. Wenham said. Mac made a very frigid bow. "'As McMurdo acts for me,' Crawley said, "'I had better retire and leave you together.' "'By no means, my dear Colonel,' Mr. Wenham said. "'I requested an interview with you personally, "'though the company of Captain McMurdo cannot fail to be pleasing. "'In fact, Captain, I hope that our conversation "'will lead to agreeable results, "'very different from those which my friend Colonel Crawley "'appears to expect,' <laughs> said Captain McMurdo. Mr. Wenham took a chair, which was not offered to him, and resumed. "'You have seen this gratifying announcement in the papers, Colonel. It is an excellent appointment. Three thousand a year, a fine government house, all your own way in the colony. I congratulate you. 
I presume you know, gentlemen, to whom my friend is indebted for this. And if I know, the captain said, to one of the most generous of men, my excellent friend, the Marquis of Steyne. I'll see him damned before I take his place, growled Rawdon. You are irritated with my noble friend, Mr. Wenham said calmly. Why, dammy, said the captain, wringing his stick on the ground. Dammy, indeed, said Mr. Wenham, smiling agreeably. Still, look at the matter as a man of the world. You come home from a journey and find what? My lord Stane supping at your house with Mrs. Crawley. Is this strange? Has he not done this a hundred times before? Upon my honour, I think that your suspicions are unfounded, and that they injure an honourable gentleman who has proved his good will towards you, and a most innocent lady. You don't mean to say that Crawley's mistaken, said McMurdo. I believe that Mrs. Crawley is as innocent as my wife, Mr. Wenham said. I believe that, misled by jealousy... My friend here attacks not only his benefactor, but his wife, his son's future reputation, and his own prospects. I found Lord Steyne this morning in a pitiable state. You took a cruel advantage of your strength, Colonel Crawley. It was not only the body of my noble friend which was wounded, his heart, sir, was bleeding. A man whom he had loaded with benefits had subjected him to indignity. His lordship was as anxious as you are to revenge the outrage. His first order to me was to write a letter of challenge. Crawley nodded. I tried my utmost to calm Lord Steyne, said Mr. Wenham. Good God, sir, I said. How I regret that Mrs. Wenham and myself had not accepted Mrs. Crawley's invitation to sup with her. She asked you to sup with her? Captain McMurdo said. After the opera. Here's the note of invitation. Oh, oh, no, this is another paper. I thought I had it, but it's of no consequence, and I pledge you my word. It was only one of Mrs. Wenham's headaches which prevented us. If we had come and you had returned home, there would have been no quarrel, no suspicion. And so it is, because my poor wife has a headache, that you are to bring death down upon two men of honour, and plunge two excellent families into disgrace and sorrow. McMurdo looked puzzled, and Rawdon felt with a kind of rage that his prey was escaping him. He did not believe a word of the story, and yet how to disprove it. Mr. Wenham continued fluently. I sat for an hour by Lord Steyne's bedside, imploring him not to demand a duel. I pointed out to him that the circumstances were after all suspicious. Any man in your position might have been taken in. I said that a man of his lordship's exalted station had no right to create a public scandal, and that, however innocent, common people would insist that he was guilty— I implored him not to send the challenge. I don't believe one word of it, said Rawdon, grinding his teeth. It's a damn lie, and you're in it, Mr. Wenham. If the challenge don't come from him, by Jove, it shall come from me. Mr. Wenham turned deadly pale, but Captain McMurdo rose up with an oath and rebuked Rawdon. You put the affair into my hands, and you shall act as I think fit, by Jove. You have no right to insult, Mr. Wenham. If you want to challenge Lord Steyne, you may get somebody else to do it. I won't. As for Mrs. Crawley, 
My belief is there's nothing proved at all. That your wife's innocent, as Mr. Wenham says. And at any rate, you would be a damned fool not to take the place and hold your tongue. Captain McMurdo, you speak like a man of sense, Mr. Wenham cried out, immensely relieved. I forget any words that Colonel Crawley has used in the heat of the moment. I thought you would, Roden said with a sneer. Oh, shut your mouth, you old stupid, the captain said good-naturedly. Mr. Wenham ain't a fighting man, and quite right, too. No word about this shall ever pass these doors, insisted Mr. Wenham. I suppose Lord Stain won't talk about it, said McMurdo, and I don't see why we should. The affair ain't a pretty one, and the less said about it, the better. If you are satisfied, why, I think we should be. Mr. Wenham took his hat, and Captain McMurdo followed him to the door and joined him outside it, leaving Rawdon within. McMurdo looked hard at the other. You don't stick at a trifle, Mr. Wenham, he said. "'You flatter me, Captain,' answered the other with a smile. "'Upon my honour, Mrs. Crawley did ask us to stop after the opera. "'Of course, I've got a thousand-pound note here, "'which I will give you for Lord Stain, if you will give me a receipt, please. "'My man shan't fight him, but we had rather not take his money.' "'It was all a mistake, my dear sir.' the other said, and descended the club steps just as Sir Pitt Crawley ascended them. McMurdo knew the baronet slightly, and told Sir Pitt that he had made the affair all right between Lord Steyne and the colonel. Sir Pitt was well pleased, of course. Going to his brother, he congratulated him warmly upon the peaceful outcome, making moral remarks on the evils of dueling, he then tried to bring about a reconciliation between Rawdon and Rebecca, asserting his own firm belief in her innocence. But Rawdon would not hear of it. She has kept money concealed from me these ten years. She swore only last night she had none from Stain. If she's not guilty, Pitt, she's as bad as guilty, and I'll never see her again. His head sank, and he looked quite broken and sad. "'Poor old boy,' McMurdo said, shaking his head. Rawdon Crowley resisted for some time the idea of taking the place found for him by so odious a patron, and was also ready to remove the boy from the school where Lord Stain's interest had placed him. He was induced, however, to consent to these benefits, chiefly by McMurdo pointing out how furious Stain would be to think that his enemy's fortune was made through his means.' The secret of the confrontation between Stain and Colonel Crawley was buried in oblivion, as Wenham said, by the people involved, at least. But before that evening was over, it was talked of at fifty dinner-tables in Vanity Fair. How Mrs. Washington White reveled in it! The Bishopess of Ealing was shocked beyond expression. Little Southdown was sorry. So was his sister, Lady Jane. Very sorry. It was town talk for at least three days. The bailiffs seized upon poor Raggles in Curzon Street, and Rebecca was, meanwhile, where? Who cared? Who asked after a day or two? Was she guilty or not? 
Some people said she had gone to Naples in pursuit of Lord Steyne, whilst others claimed that his lordship fled to Palermo on hearing of Becky's arrival. Some said she had become a lady-in-waiting to the Queen of Bulgaria, some that she was at Bologna, and others at a boarding-house at Cheltenham. Rawdon made her an annual payment, and she was a woman who could make a little money go a great way. He would have paid his debts on leaving England, could he have got any life insurance, but the climate of Coventry Island was so bad that he could not borrow funds on the strength of his salary. He sent money, however, to his brother, punctually, and wrote to his little boy with every mail. He kept McMurdo in cigars, and sent over quantities of shells, cayenne pepper, hot pickles, and colonial produce to Lady Jane. He sent his brother the Swamp Town Gazette, in which the new governor was praised with immense enthusiasm. Little Rawdon used to like to read in the papers about his excellency. His mother never made any movement to see the child. He went home to his aunt for Sundays and holidays. He soon knew every bird's nest about Queen's Crawley, and rode out with Sir Huddleston's hounds, which he had admired so on his first visit to Hampshire. Chapter 56 Georgie is Made a Gentleman Georgie Osborne was now established in his grandfather's mansion in Russell Square, occupying his father's room and heir of all its splendors. The boy's good looks and gallant bearing won his grandfather's heart. Mr. Osborne was as proud of him as ever he had been of the elder George. The child had many more luxuries than his father had. Osborne's business had prospered, and his wealth and importance in the city had very much increased. He had been glad enough to send the elder George to a good private school, and had been proud of his army commission, but for little George the old man looked much higher. He would make a gentleman of the little chap, he said. A collegian, a parliament man, a baronet, perhaps. He would have none but a tip-top college man to educate him. A few years before, he used to declare savagely that parsons, scholars, and the like were humbugs, supercilious dogs that looked down upon British merchants who could buy up half a hundred of them. Now he mourned that his own education had been neglected, and pointed out in pompous speeches to Georgie the necessity of classical learning. When they met at dinner, the grandsire would ask the lad what he had been reading, and was greatly interested in the boy's studies, pretending to understand what little George said about them. He made a hundred blunders and often showed his ignorance. It did not increase the child's respect for him. The boy soon realized that his grandfather was a dullard, and began to look down upon him for his previous education humble as it had been, had made a much better gentleman of Georgie than any plans of his grandfather. He had been brought up by a kind, weak, tender woman, who had no pride about anything but him, a true lady, with a pure heart and humble bearing. If she never said brilliant things, she never spoke or thought unkind ones. Young Georgie lorded over her soft and yielding nature. The coarse pomposity of the dull old man made him lord over the latter, too. If he had been a prince royal, he could not have thought better of himself. 
Whilst his mother was yearning for him at home, this young gentleman had pleasures which made him bear the separation from her very easily. He was given a handsome pony and was taught to ride, first at a riding school and then in Regent's Park and Hyde Park, where he rode in state with Martin, the coachman, behind him. Old Osborne, leaving his city affairs to his junior partners, would often ride out with Miss Osborne in the same fashionable direction. As little Georgie came cantering up with his dandified air, his grandfather would nudge his daughter and say, "'Look, Miss O!' Here, too, his aunt, Mrs. Frederick Bullock, whose carriage appeared daily, with three pasty-faced little Bullocks staring from the windows— Mrs. Frederick Bullock flung glances of hatred at the little upstart as he rode by, as proud as a lord. Though he was scarcely eleven, Master George wore the most beautiful little boots like a man's. He had gilt spurs and a gold-headed whip and neat little kid gloves. His mother had carefully made shirts and knickcloths for him, but when he came to see her, they were replaced by much finer linen with jewel buttons. Her humble presence had been put aside. Miss Osborne had given them to the coachman's boy. Amelia tried to think she was pleased. Indeed, she was happy and charmed to see the boy looking so beautiful. She had a little profile of him done for a shilling, and this was hung up besides her husband's portrait over her bed. One day, the boy came on his visit, galloping down the street at Brompton. With great eagerness and triumph, he held out a leather case. I bought it with my own money, Mamma. I thought you'd like it. Amelia opened the case and, giving a cry of delight, seized the boy and embraced him. It was a miniature of himself, very prettily done. His grandfather had wished to have a picture of him painted by an artist, and George, who had plenty of money, asked the painter how much a copy of the little portrait would cost, saying that he wanted to give it to his mother. This proof of the boy's affection charmed her. She thought no child in the world was so good as hers. For weeks after, the thought of his love made her happy. She slept the better with the picture under her pillow. And how many times did she kiss it and pray over it? Since her parting with George, she had had no such joy and consolation. At his new home, Master George ruled like a lord. At dinner, he coolly invited the ladies to drink wine and took champagne in a way which charmed his grandfather. The lad's antics did not, however, delight Mr. Osborne's friends. It gave Mr. Justice Coffin no pleasure to hear Georgie cut into the conversation and spoil his stories. Colonel Fogey was not interested in seeing the little boy half tipsy. Mrs. Toffey felt no gratitude when he tilted a glass of port wine over her yellow satin dress and laughed at the disaster, nor was she pleased, although old Osborne was highly delighted, when Georgie whopped her third boy. George's grandfather gave the boy two sovereigns for that feat, and promised to reward him for every boy above his own size whom he whopped in a similar manner. It is difficult to say what the old man saw in these combats. He had a vague notion that quarreling made boys hardy, and that tyranny was a useful accomplishment. English youth have long been so taught. Flushed with victory over Master Toffee, 
George wished to pursue his conquests further. One day, as he was strutting about in dandified new clothes, a young baker's boy made sarcastic comments. George pulled off his jacket with great spirit, and giving it to his friend, Master Todd, tried to whop the little baker. But this time, the little baker whopped Georgie, who came home with a rueful black eye and all his fine shirt frill dabbled with blood from his own nose. He told his grandfather that he had fought a giant and frightened his poor mother with long and by no means authentic accounts of the battle. This young Todd, the son of a junior partner in Osborne's firm, was Master George's great friend and admirer. They both had a taste for raspberry tarts, for sliding and skating on the serpentine, when the weather permitted, and for going to the play, where they were often taken at Mr. Osborne's orders by Rowson, Master George's servant. In Rowson's company, they visited all the main theatres, knew the names of all the actors, and performed many of the plays to the Todd family and their youthful friends. Rowson, who was a generous man, would sometimes treat his young master to oysters after the play, and to a glass of rum shrub. We may be pretty certain that Mr. Rowson profited in his turn from his young master's liberality. A famous West End tailor was summoned to clothe little George, and was told to spare no expense. So Georgie had white waistcoats for evening parties, and little velvet waistcoats for dinners, and dressed for dinner every day, like a regular West End swell, as his grandfather remarked. One of the servants helped him dress, answered his bill, and brought him his letters on a silver tray. Georgie made the house lively by his activity, his imperiousness, his scolding, and his good nature. He was educated by a neighboring scholar who prepared young noblemen for the universities, the senate, and the learned professions, in whose family the pupils would find the elegances of refined society and the affection of a home. It was in this way that the Reverend Lawrence Veal and his wife strove to entice pupils. This chaplain and his lady had a few scholars who paid a high figure for comfortable quarters. There was a large West Indian, whom nobody came to see, with a dandified appearance. There was a hulking boy of three-and-twenty whose education had been previously neglected. There were two sons of Colonel Bangles of the East India Company. These four were sat down to dinner at Mrs. Veal's genteel board when Georgie was introduced to her house. Like some dozen other pupils, he was only a day boy, escorted to school by Mr. Rowson. His grandfather's wealth was reported in the school to be prodigious. The Reverend Mr. Veal used to compliment Georgie upon it personally, warning him that he was destined for high stations and should prepare for the lofty duties to which he would be called. He therefore begged that George would not bring toffee into the school and ruin the health of the master's bangles. The young gentleman could learn every known science— the Reverend Mr. Veal had an orrery, an electrifying machine, a turning lathe, a theatre in the washhouse, a chemical apparatus, and a select library of the works of the best authors. 
He took the boys to the British Museum and discussed the specimens there, gathering an audience, and he always took care when speaking to use the very finest and longest words possible. Thus, he would say to George in school, I observed on my return home from taking the indulgence of an evening scientific conversation with my excellent friend Dr. Builders that the windows of your venerated grandfather's princely mansion in Russell Square were illuminated as if for the purposes of festivity. Am I right in my conjecture that Mr. Osborne entertained a society of chosen spirits round his sumptuous board last night?' Little Georgie, who used to mimic Mr. V to his face with great dexterity, would reply that Mr. V was quite correct in his surmise. To this great man, George's education was entrusted. Amelia was bewildered by his phrases, but thought him a prodigy of learning. She made friends of Mrs. Veal, and liked to be asked to Mrs. Veal's conversazione, which took place once a month, when the professor welcomed his pupils and their friends to weak tea and scientific conversation. Poor little Amelia never missed one of these entertainments and thought them delicious as long as she had Georgie sitting by her and she would embrace Mrs. Veal with tearful gratitude for the delightful evening before putting on her cloak and walking home. As for George's learning, to judge from the weekly reports he took home to his grandfather, his progress was remarkable. In Greek, Georgie was pronounced Aristos, in Latin, Optimus, in French, Très bien, and so forth. And everybody had prizes for everything at the end of the year. Even the woolly-headed Mr. Swartz, half-brother to the Honorable Mrs. McMull and Mr. Bluck, the neglected pupil of three-and-twenty, and the young scapegrace Mr. Todd, received little eighteen-penny books with a Latin inscription from the professor. Thus, it seemed to be decreed that Georgie was to domineer over everybody, and that all must bow the knee before the little fellow. He was quite willing— George liked to play the part of master, and perhaps had a natural aptitude for it. In Russell Square, everybody was afraid of Mr. Osborne, and Mr. Osborne was afraid of Georgie. The boy's dashing manners, his offhand rattle about books and learning, and his likeness to his dead father awed the old gentleman. The old man tried by indulgence to make up for his harshness to the elder George, People were surprised at his gentleness to the boy. He growled and swore at Miss Osborne, yet would smile when George came down late for breakfast. Miss Osborne was now a faded old spinster, broken down by forty years of dullness and coarse usage. It was easy for Georgie to master her. Whenever he wanted anything, from the jam pots in her cupboards to the cracked old colors in her paint box, Georgie took possession of it, and then took no further notice of his aunt. The other old grandfather, Mr. Sedley, was likewise subject to the little tyrant. He could not help respecting a lad who had such fine clothes and rode with the groom. Georgie, on his side, was used to hearing coarse abuse leveled at John Sedley by his pitiless enemy, Mr. Osborne, who called him the old coal-ban, the old bankrupt, and many other such names. How could George respect him? 
when Mrs. Sedley died, the child did not show much grief. He came down to visit his mother in a fine new suit of mourning and was very angry that he could not go to a play. The illness of that old lady had been the occupation and perhaps the safeguard of Amelia. What do men know about women's martyrdoms? Men should go mad if they had to endure the hundredth part of those daily pains which are meekly borne by so many women. Amelia's mother had taken to her bed, which she had never left, and from which Amelia was never absent except when she ran to see George. The old lady grudged her even those rare visits. She had been a kind, smiling mother once, but poverty and illness had broken her down. Amelia bore her mother's harshness gently, smoothed the uneasy pillow, was always ready with a soft answer to the querulous voice, and finally closed the eyes that had once looked so tenderly upon her. Then all her time and tenderness were devoted to comforting the bereaved old father, who was stunned by this blow. Everything he loved best had fallen away from him. It was only Amelia to stand by and support him with her gentle arms. We are not going to write the history. It would be too dreary and stupid. I can see Vanity Fair yawning over it already. One day, as the pupils were assembled in the study at the Reverend Mr. Veal's, a smart carriage drove up to the door and two gentlemen stepped out. The young master Spangles rushed to the window with a vague notion that their father might have arrived from Bombay. The hulking scholar of three-and-twenty flattened his neglected nose against the panes and looked out at the men. "'It's a fat one and a thin one,' he said, as a knock thundered on the door. The servant boy came into the study and said, "'Two gentlemen want to see Master Osborne.' The professor had had a trifling disagreement that morning with George, owing to a difference about the introduction of crackers in school time, but he said, with bland courtesy, "'Master Osborne, I give you permission to go and see your friends, to whom I beg you to convey my respectful compliments.' Georgie went into the reception room and saw two strangers, whom he looked at in his usual haughty manner." One was fat, with mustachios, and the other was lean and long, in a blue frock coat, with a brown face and a grizzled head. "'My God, how like he is!' said the long gentleman with a start. "'Can you guess who we are, George?' The boy's face flushed and his eyes brightened. "'I don't know about the other,' he said. "'But I think you must be Major Dobbin.' Indeed, it was our old friend." His voice trembled with pleasure as he greeted the boy, and taking his hands, drew the lad to him. "'Your mother has talked to you about me, has she?' he said. "'That she has,' Georgie answered, "'hundreds and hundreds of times.'" Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. 
And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.